Welcome to Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares islander views and voices. I'm Kalani Rages, your millennial indigenous advocate and host. We are recording on the 24th of November, 2020. Never forget, black lives all around the world still matter. Supposedly, they will matter more in America under the Biden-Harris administration, but we will have to wait and see and hold them just as accountable as the last blank who was in the White House. Regardless, black lives matter, especially in West Papua. If you support black lives, supporting black lives in the Pacific means choosing to say free West Papua as often as you can. Find a link to educate yourself on what has transpired there in the show notes. Breonna Taylor's killers need to all be arrested. The carceral system, capitalism, and imperialism as a whole need to be abolished in order to rein in the effects of climate change, which as we may be aware has been affecting Pacific Islanders such as those in the Solomon Islands in Melanesia, our siblings in the Marshall Islands and Kiribati in Micronesia, in Tuvalu in Polynesia, and will affect all of us as far as the Philippines and Japan up north, down south to Papua New Guinea and Australia, and east to Tahiti and surrounding islands. Sea level rise will affect us to a deeper extent than other parts of the world, being that we are on islands surrounded by the rising sea. Also, queer Pacifica people, as always, still need to be supported, uplift their voices. Happy LGBTQ plus in STEM day. That happened on November 18th. So shout out to all of you Pacifica STEM ones in particular. Please be my friend. I would like to begin with the acknowledgement that I am recording on Guahangi Islas Marianas, currently a territory occupied by the U.S. I am not from Guam, so I call myself a settler. Incidentally, the topic of this episode, my situation is further made weird by the fact that I am Chamorro, indigenous to these islands, not a settler in the usual sense at all. However, this decision of mine is completely one to act in solidarity and not take up space away from my Guahan Manietlu. Therefore, it is with respect that I occupy this land and space and support Guahan in its fight for self-determination. It is a growing movement, so please come on board. We begin this episode with a quote from an indigenous pair of Pacifica people that resonates. Today's quote is an excerpt from a poem contained in the Masters of Arts thesis of two Pacifica Chomoro scholars. My friend, I do not know your name, but I know your longing. Is it equal to mine? Is it as painful? What have you left behind? I sit here, drowning myself in research. It brings me closer to my home, to a land I have not set foot on in four years In this room painted blue, I am transported back. In this room, symbol of the ocean that connects us. This was from a poem entitled Pulawat Kanu Chuk, Federated States of Micronesia. From the master's thesis of Dr. In the Making, Kisha Kichocho Kalvo and Angela Unghet Hope Cruz, both of them being Chamorro poets, activists, and scholars, the thesis is entitled Ikareran Ipalabran Mami, The Journey of Our Words, which is 210 pages of creative poems and the context behind each of them. I love the Chamorro title. Great job to these amazing women. As an aside, let me read to you the dedication. Ikareran Ipalabran Mami is dedicated to the Chamorro people, Micronesian peoples, Oceanic peoples, our families, 
the people whose stories we've been blessed to hear, and the people whose stories have yet to be heard. This was written in 2010, when many of us were just babies. So they were basically talking about us. It's almost as if they knew. Kisha is pursuing her PhD in Indigenous Politics at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She is one of the author poets of the Indigenous Book of Poems entitled Effigies 3, the link which I put down in the show notes. I highly recommend this as a buy for your activist Pacifica friends for Christmas. There are many other prominent Pacifica author academics featured in that book as well, but this is Kisha's moment, so shout out to her. The next author is Angela Onghet Hop Cruz. She is an assistant program director for the Hawaiian nonprofit In Peace, the Institute for Native Peace Education and Culture. Really freaking awesome. She's also an adjunct faculty member for the School of Social Work at Hawaii Pacific University. So shout out to Onghet. They are both awesome Chamarita scholars, and I am happy to see them making the most of their abilities and making waves in the Pacific with their work. This quote resonates because this episode will be about settlers in the Pacific, settler colonialism, making home in new places, what migration means to us as Pacific peoples, why the word settler is so difficult to pin down, and how this difficulty influences us as indigenous peoples. You will hear from an awesome lineup of my favorite Pacifica ladies, Tamiti, our awesome Tahitian Samoan Afakasi educator, Miss Rhonda, our indigenous fiery Fijian from Viti. Teatuahere, our favorite beautiful Tahitian Maohi soul with the beautiful Tatao. Our girl Ha'ani, lending the Samoan Chamoru Gininguahan perspective. And lastly, but not a lady, our favorite angry, angry Hawaiian coming in for the win, Kavena. We will end today with a little summary of the article, Radical Care and Survival Strategies for Uncertain Times, published in March of this year, so very relevant to the times, and one of the authors is a Pacifica researcher. You definitely want to stay for that. Now let's do it. Let's dive in. The driving question today. What do Pacifica people think about settlers? How do they describe settlers? And what messages do they have for settlers in their homelands? Let me start off by saying that being called or described as a settler is not a bad thing, nor is it a slur. Visceral reactions to this word can be expected. You are probably coming into this episode disliking it already. If you're indigenous, you may dislike the word for a number of reasons, pointing to colonization and settler colonialism. If you identify as a settler, you may dislike it because you have ingrained white supremacist teachings into the fabric of your thoughts. So many things to say about settlers. For the purpose of the episode, try to come into this discussion with an open mind. Note the word, then let it go. It is not your identity and it should not be your identity. You should not identify so closely with any word that does not describe your cultural background, the house you might be sorted into if you are a witch, warlock, or wizard, or your skin color. It's just one of those words that reveal a person's position at a moment in time. It can change, and so can they. To understand the word settler, you would need to understand colonization. Luckily for you... My beautiful listener, we already went and did an episode on decolonization where we touched on colonialism. 
Let me refresh you though. Colonization happens when a group of people from an empire come to a land that already has indigenous people established and they assert their control and erase or violently displace the people there so that they and their empire can benefit from the resources of that place. Does that sound familiar to you? If they use military force to do it, it's called imperialism. Usually they say some BS like the people there were primitive or savages or etc. to justify to the world and to themselves and to their descendants that this process is okay. Do you have an ancestor like that? Guess what? You're not them. But you may still be participating in the system and emulating them. Does that make you quote unquote bad? Well... I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we are not here to discuss you today. We are here to discuss decolonization and the role settlers play. Also, I highly suggest you give Mapmaker David's contribution from the episode on decolonization, episode 4, a thorough listen. That was on episode 4, What Does Decolonization Mean to Me as a Pacific Islander? His use of the acronym COVID was genius. Anyway, usually these colonizers impose their own beliefs on those indigenous people, and they do this in various ways, such as by creating schools and designing the curriculum to erase their sense of self and their knowledge of their own history, or by burning books and persecuting or banishing academics, indigenous academics, and other influential people who do not support their regime. This process does not stop there. It is a continuous one, one that must be maintained for generations that require continuously downgrading the indigenous people of a place in as many ways as can be so that they are subservient and that they don't rebel. Colonizers in America force Native Americans to march thousands of miles away from their home territories, killing them through genocide, disease, exhaustion, starvation, to a land that belonged to another. Many elders died during those marches, the Trail of Tears. And elders passing away means that you lose critical parts of your history as a people. They also cut off some Native American tribes' sources of food by killing off entire herds of bison. If you saw that photo of all the bison skulls on social media circulating, you know what I'm talking about. It was very traumatizing. This is the process of disenfranchisement, which simply means to deprive a person or a group of rights and or privileges. The colonizers claim the best lands and the most precious resources for themselves and their agendas. Ultimately, the fruits of this violent grab are not seen by the people of the land to whom it belongs. They only receive ongoing harm and decimation. The emotional and mental toll this can take on a people is horrendous. But look at you. You're here today, my awesome Pacifica listener, my precious indigenous listener, a descendant of great people who are so much more than just resilient. Look at the Pacific and don't look away. If we are complicit and choose not to look and not to act, this process will just continue. It has already been put in place. To subvert that, we would need to create new things. We will need to revive indigenous ways of thinking. 
and indigenous management. But let's get back to the episode. I personally have so many experiences being a settler. I consider myself a settler of a political sort right now. I'm not technically diaspora because this land is the land of my people. But my island is not Guam. My island is Saipan, to the north. And my presence on Guam displaces the native Chamorro population on Guam because I am a participant in this system. And because I already have family land that I will inherit in my home island of Saipan, I am taking away from the Chamorros of Guahan. Settlers, by definition, displace the indigenous people and the poorest people of the places where they stay. They take space and resources from them by their existence in that space. They perpetuate colonialism in some instances as well. You will hear from Kavena and others today on ways settlers can negate this harm of taking by giving to these communities, by supporting the indigenous people and by uplifting their voices as they struggle to regain sovereignty. This not only benefits the indigenous people of a place, it ultimately benefits all the people living there. Makere said in the episode 7 on Land Back that her clan was recently allowed to have access to knowledge and data about bodies of water on their land. Imagine how Aotearoa would look like today if Maori people all had access to information about their own resources. How differently would natural resource management be? I personally say give them control, let the community play bigger roles in managing their own resources, but you know, that's just me. Check out episode 7 on Land Back to hear more awesome Indigenous Pacifica takes about land and to hear Makere's piece in full. We don't have to get into every single aspect of settlers and settler colonialism because, no, these topics do deserve time in order to do them justice. But it's also a pandemic and I can barely keep my life together as it is because I just moved and I'm a college student and chaotically slowly building back my routine. And as for you, my awesome listener, I have no idea of what you could be going through right now either. I hope you are safe, protected and cared for. What we accomplished today is we're basically going to spend some time in thought about this topic and get us reflecting a bit more about colonialism and how settlers perpetuate it or can perpetuate it, which is all I wanted to do in the first place, really. While doing my preliminary research, I noticed that there were exceptions to nearly every definition of settler that I came across. That's called nuance. That's because only recently has this become something academics engage with. To be honest, it tells you a lot about who has been in academia and why it has taken this long for the words intersectionality and settler colonialism to really take root in mainstream media. Remember that the ocean has no natural boundary lines. And much of these thoughts today are constructs of our Western societies and byproducts of their political aspirations of imperialism, of capitalism, of racism and white supremacy. Indigenous people didn't create these systems. They were forced upon us, violently, and this cannot be overstated. Would we even be talking about the harm that settlers perpetuate if the places they settled in were actually decolonized to begin with? Or if the places had their own sovereignty, were not subject to imperialism, and if the decision-making were in the hands of the indigenous people in the first place? Most likely not. Yet, here we are. 
I want to issue a disclaimer beforehand, being that this episode is a part of our decolonization series. This is an important and explosive topic. It's not easy to grasp. It's not easy to explain. And some may take offense to the things that are said. That is okay. Let us work on decentering ourselves. Breathe in the good mana. Breathe in. Inhale. Exhale. Exhale the weight of colonization. Exhale. Now, let your shoulders relax. Let your jaw and your tongue relax. Open your ears and minds and hearts to be ready to receive these stories and lived experiences. And now, here is our first contributor. Yaurana. I'm just going to start this contribution by sharing a few readings I enjoy. I'm going to start with a poem by Henri Hiro here in French. Peuple Maori, je te salue. Je voudrais m'adresser à toi et te rappeler notre façon de vivre qui est aujourd'hui préoccupante. Si je tourne mes yeux vers notre passé, je ne peux m'empêcher de m'interroger. Que sommes-nous devenus aujourd'hui sur notre terre natale. Hier, tu étais quelqu'un chez toi. Tu étais ton maître et seul maître de ta terre, de ta vie familiale. Et ta langue était l'instrument privilégié que tu utilisais pour diriger et organiser ta vie. Mais aujourd'hui, hélas, il n'est plus possible de t'affirmer ainsi. Tes traditions disparaissent peu à peu dans l'oubli. Ta voix s'éteint. Ta porte se ferme. Nous entendons de moins en moins la voix de ton hospitalité interpeller le passant. Viens manger, viens dans ma maison. Allons, viens. Il y a bien d'autres voix aussi que nous n'entendons plus. Et l'intérêt, l'argent, l'ambition ont étouffé ta joie de vivre. Ta simplicité et ton hospitalité. C'est pourquoi je me tourne vers l'homme venu d'ailleurs et je lui dis « Écoute-moi, si tu étais venu chez moi, je t'aurais accueilli à bras ouverts et j'aurais tout partagé avec toi. Mais tu es venu chez toi et je ne sais comment t'accueillir chez toi. Il faut que tu saches, peuple Maori, que ces paroles ne sont pas pour t'inciter à la haine ou au regret. Au contraire, C'est dans la paix que je parle et c'est pour la paix que je m'interroge. Peuple Maori, reviens chez toi. Reviens sur ta terre, dans ta maison. Parle ta langue, n'oublie pas ton passé. Sois fier de ton histoire. Prépare ton avenir dans la paix et pour la paix. Henri Hiro's poem points out to what would have happened had settlers come in without intending to arrive in a place they considered as theirs from the start. In his poem, he says, I'm going to try to translate. He says, let me speak to you, settler. Listen to me. Had you come to my land, seeing it as my home, I would have been able to host you and to share everything with you. But you came into my land, claiming it as your home. And the issue here is, I don't know how to welcome you into 
your home. This to me is a powerful passage underlining the primary issue there is with settler colonialism. As what some would call an afakasi, I won't be waltzing around asking settlers to go home because some of my ancestors were settlers. So it would be completely inane of me to say that I despise immigration. I'm not gonna lie, I love a cosmopolitan place. I love a blending of views. I'm fond of cultures meeting and mixing. I was also a settler myself in Melbourne during my studies. I studied on Aboriginal land, on Wurundjeri Kulin Nation land. So yes, I'm not against immigration. I'm not against settlers. I don't think they're the problem. I think colonialism, egocentricity, sectarianism, chauvinism are the problems. I'm going to end this contribution with a few more quotes I really like from authors I appreciate. So Albert Wendt in The Mango's Kiss, page 214, has his character say, We can define ourselves by what we've lost, but we can also define ourselves by what we've gained and through alofa. That I really like. On page 52, I quote, An unbreakable bond of alofa and respect grew between them and became the strength of their lives. I would like to see that happen between settlers and indigenous peoples. Finally, in Portiki, I read, It was good to have new skills and new ideas and to listen to all the new stories told by all the people who came. It was good to have others to tell our own stories to and to have them here sharing our land and our lives. Good had followed what was not good on the circle of our days. Putiki is a book by Patricia Grace. To me, those quotes really highlight how I feel about settler colonialism and immigration, which are totally different things. I hope these quotes resounded with you. Thank you very much for listening. Okay, Sainam Aussie again to Minty for your awesome contribution. I always learn something new every time she lends her perspective, and this has not changed. I really found myself in a funny situation, actually, while editing Tamiti's piece because I don't understand French. However, Tamiti's piece was fairly self-explanatory in her small translation of the gist of the passage she read, which was, You come into my land, and I mean to welcome you. But instead of treating it like my home you're moving to, you claim it as your own. How am I to act, then? Let's think about that for a second. How much intention should be considered when thinking about settlers and how they identify compared to immigrants? Is there a blending of this line? You will hear one of our contributors speak on this. What intentions and actions would people have to have or do to show that they are respectful settlers who will act like good guests of your land? What happens if they stay and have children? How should their children act? Well, of course, the answer is and always will be they need to decolonize and support indigenous peoples. Tamiti quotes Albert Wendt, a Samoan poet and writer who wrote the book Leaves of the Banyan Tree in 1979, and Patricia Grace, a Maori author who wrote Potiki 
1986. Both of these books are linked in the show notes in case you wanted to get them for a special Pacifica person in your life one day. She mentions that settler colonialism and immigration are two very different things. It is important to keep this in mind because this is how colonization is perpetuated through time, with these individual settler colonizer actions accumulating into a system that works against indigenous people at every point in their lives, starting from the healthcare their mother received as she was pregnant until their passing to join our other ancestors. But isn't it comforting, freeing even, to realize that you are not born a colonizer, a settler, a migrant? It is the actions that you take that reveal who you are. If you think about it, it's because of white supremacy, capitalism, and imperialism that makes this whole identification of people leave a sour taste in your mouth. What even is a Micronesian, a Melanesian, a Polynesian? Anyway... I loved how Tamiti admitted her biases for immigration as someone who has enjoyed the privilege of settling on indigenous land in the past temporarily for school. This, to me, is a powerful part in thinking about decolonization. We need to stop ignoring how much our upbringing and worldview is shaped by our gender identification, age, cultures, nationality, class, and sexual orientation, and pay attention to how much the world's view of us can mold us further. As Tamiti pointed out, you cannot have settler colonialism without migration happening at one point in a settler's history, but you can have immigration without settler colonialism. This means, again, that what defines a settler colonizer is not their being, but their actions. If you want to be a respectful settler and have good mana and perpetuate indigenous systems of governance and care, then decolonize and support indigenous peoples. Thank you again, Tamiti, for your awesome perspective as a mixed Pacifica educator. That was very insightful. I particularly loved that this podcast has so many languages. Bulavinaka, this is Rhonda, your Fijian sibling from Viti. And um, this topic has been, of course, uh, very controversial amongst a lot of discussions. So you ask what settler colonialism is. Now, settler colonialism is one of ambush and disempowerment, erasure of indigenous presence. How will they remove indigenous presence, you may ask? Erasure of language and culture, of course. We, as descendants of former colonized states, only knew how to gratify our colonizers and you see this throughout textbooks and the institutions perpetuated through tangled webs of religious indoctrinations. We praise them for demonizing our culture and tradition. We now believe them to be heathenist practices. Why? I believe it was the advancement that inspired fear and to some others, or they were clothed in foreign fabric, textures and color palettes out of this world, glistened pasty white skin and tricked us and their tools that made short work of chores defeated our egos in any form of innovation. But oh, how we have suffered because of it. The young now both speaking anything besides their own language, dialects further taking a back seat. Cultural practices have become exhausting and cheaper shortcuts displace them to history. Natural resource sustainability is secondary to infrastructural development. That's the effect of settler colonialism. Our indigenousness is visibly compromised by settler advancement 
and this foreign culture runs rampant like weed heavily rooted in society. We see this in the depreciated views of cultural practices, waning respect amongst traditional relationships where excommunications has replaced commonality. Remember, living together was part of our very essence. That saying that it takes a village to raise a child is the foundation of village living and caring for each other. Indigenous people, let's be careful. Revive what's ours and sets us apart in this world. Contextualize foreign concepts for advancement to fit into what we have safeguarding indigeneity instead of displacing it altogether. We must protect us. Settlers, please know that we are co-inhabitants of this world and we must all be free to celebrate our uniqueness without compromising anyone else's. So with those words, thank you very much. Thank you. My sister Rhonda there from VT. Rhonda is a beautiful voice in Deep Pacific because she is Itoke who loves religion and loves tradition. Not sure if this was obvious from her piece, but her previous piece on artivism, episode 5 of Deep Pacific, went much more in-depth to why she feels so close to her religion and culture and tradition and was very, very great. She also recently released a new song and dance anthem. I highly recommend you check out that link in the show notes. Rhonda makes a great point in that These days, often we are pressed for time and have been entranced to use cheap knockoffs for our culture, with indigenous things like dialects disappearing. Revive what's ours and safeguard indigeneity was her message. And her message to settlers basically boiled down to, settlers, we just want to cohabitate. Be aware of your actions, as we all should be, like I said decolonize and support indigenous voices. Bula Vinaka Rhonda for your short and sweet but important contribution. Yorana, my name is Teotowahiri. I come from the islands of Hawaii and Tahiti. As we speak on settlers, I would like to offer an approach to Pacifica diaspora that has helped me feel more connected to my tupuna, even though I live on islands far away. Our Tupuna voyaged throughout the Pacific for millennia. We followed the stars and changing currents to our cousins, an oceanic bridge away. Like my Tupuna before me, I have voyaged across this sea, our Moana, many times. My mother, like her Tupuna before her, retraced their steps as she pressed north towards Hawaii. Hawaii, these islands born of immortal love, has been another home to traveling Maoohi for generations. We have always found ourselves drawn to our Kanaka cousins, welcomed by the vibrant hibiscus and pounded taro. My cousins love to come visit us in Hawaii. They love the surf and the people and the food. We always take the chance to go home. Like the navigators that crossed the vast sea, my family ensured we would always have a way home. My mother, my sister, and five of my cousins are flight attendants. Through these travels between homes, I have learned the importance of solidarity. Kanaka Maoli and Maohi have learned from each other for millennia, and now the connection that exists between us has never been more important. 
We come from the same sea. We know the Moana and all her ruthless beauty. Through this knowing, we cultivate Pilina, restoring what was lost. As Pacifica, we understand that to love a people, we must love their land, their Aina, their Fenua. We must fight for their Aina, for their Fenua in the same way we fight for our own. Through this resistance, we grow stronger together. Settlers, I feel, can contribute to the community by offering unique perspectives and knowledge. But this positive contribution is contingent on settlers understanding that our place and the kuleana we have to this land that we occupy. Settlers of Hawaii must understand that we inhabit an illegally occupied kingdom where the indigenous people are placed at the bottom of the list of priorities. Settlers must understand our role as allies to the indigenous people. Otherwise, we're just maintaining colonization. Oh, beautiful, poetic settler submission. As always, Sainam Asite Tuahere for sharing your Maohi perspective. Your words never fail to hit deep. And I guess this is why we're called Deep Pacific. Teatu Here goes in and mentions how being a settler and migrant in Hawaii taught her the importance of solidarity. She says, We come from the same sea. As Pacifica, we understand that to love a people, we must love their land. And this is true. You cannot say you love one without the other. Because indigenous people are their land. They are an extension of their land. So how would it be possible to love America, but not Native Americans? By the way, happy Native American Heritage Day. That's happening this Friday. How do people say they love Hawaii without loving Kanaka Maoli? To be honest, on one hand, I'm like, how dare they? But on the other hand, I'm like, not surprised. Because I come from a place that is owned by the U.S. I live in a land where people not from America originally dictate what people who are indigenous to America and other indigenous people in the Pacific and elsewhere that are unfortunate enough to be associated with the U.S. should act and our place in our own lands. So, how should settlers in these lands act? Tea touched on it somewhat in her piece, but I will let our next two contributors handle it. Malo and buenas todo hamzu. This is Haani again. I don't plan to talk too long, so I'm going to go totally verbatim. But for this week's discussion on settlers, I want to begin by reading a poem by the famous and incredible Haunani K. Trask. Not only is she a powerful wahine, an intelligent activist, and an overall powerhouse that I admire and look up to, I think that she should be credited for being at the forefront of settler colonial studies, specifically noting that she took on this challenge to discuss such a contentious topic within Hawaii and Pacifica at large. So the poem that I'm going to recite is titled Settlers, Not Immigrants, and it is found within the native section of the book called Asian Settler Colonialism. So here we go. Settlers, Not Immigrants, from America, from Asia, come to settle, to take, to take from the native that which is native, land, water, women, sovereignty. Settlers, not immigrants, bringing syphilis and leprosy, 
Jehovah and Democracy, Settlers Settling, Our Native Hawaii, Inscribing Their Lies of Discovery, of Penury, of Victory, Settlers, Not Immigrants, Killing Us Off, Disease by Disease, Lie by Lie, One by One. Now, for those of you who may have never heard how Nani Ketra speak or have never had the chance to read her works before, you might have listened to this poem and thought that her words or her stance might be, um, how do I say it, very radical. <laughs> but I think what I want to point out is, what is that feeling that you felt when you heard this poem? What is the feeling that you feel when you hear the word settler or indigenous? I think the biggest, and I don't want to say problem, but I feel like a lot of folks spend a tremendous amount of time trying to distinguish between what is indigenous and what is a settler. And I think that how Nani K. Trask points out in this poem that it is not so black and white, it is not a binary. You can kind of merge or move between the two oftentimes as an immigrant. But I think... What I want to point out is, again, what is the feeling that you feel? Do you identify as indigenous? If so, what responsibility do you have to not only your culture, your land, and your people, but to other indigenous communities throughout the Pacific and throughout the world? If you identify as a settler, do you know whose land you occupy? How are you disenfranchising the indigenous people there? Although you may be marginalized, how are you also complicit in that marginalization of indigenous people? If you identify as an immigrant, how are you aiding the indigenous population there while also practicing your own cultural beliefs? I don't think things have to be so black and white and I feel like there's room to be a settler and an immigrant and indigenous. And I feel like there needs to be more nuance in the conversation However, I study settler colonialism and I believe that we need to keep settlers accountable for the actions they have in disempowering the indigenous communities that they occupy or the land that they occupy that belongs to the indigenous communities there. So my biggest question is, what is your responsibility to the land that you inhabit? What is the responsibility you have in this life? And what is the responsibility that you have for your ancestors to come? Like, girl needs to slow down with how much light she brought. She really was living up to her name there in that submission. Ha'ani means sunrise in Chamorro. First off, you already know that when Dr. Haunani K. Trask's name is mentioned in this podcast, we are going to fangirl. She was the Pacifica scholar activist powerhouse who we quoted for the episode on Land Back because... Of course, when you think of the academic discourse in the Pacific regarding settlers and land, if you're into that kind of thing, her name is one of the first ones you will come across. She is that iconic. Anyway, Ha'ani went on to say that the poem really showed to her that this line between settler and migrant indigenous isn't really as clear-cut as you would think. This is further complicated by the fact that you could be multiple things at once. Like Tamiti, who is descended from both a settler and indigenous Samoan Maohi. I consider myself a settler politically, but I am indigenous. 
And I'm sure that not everyone agrees with my little land acknowledgement in the beginning of every show. But you know what? I still submit demilitarization comments and show up to the protests and marches. And I support Guam's right to self-determination regardless of what others may say. Some identities just refuse to be put into a clean little box. Because after all, we are not cats who like boxes, by the way. This discussion really highlights how messy colonizers are, doesn't it? Moving on, my two favorite quotes from Ha'ani. A lot of folks spend a tremendous amount of time trying to distinguish between what is indigenous and what is a settler. And I think that Ha'onani K. Trask points out in this poem that it is not so black and white. It is not a binary. You can often move between the two, oftentimes as an immigrant. This quote really opened my eyes. The first time I heard it, I was like, well, yeah, of course, Kalani, why didn't you ever think about things this way? But Then again, I forgive myself for my ignorance because I was educated and actually brainwashed by a colonizer. And like Ha'ani said, we need to keep them accountable for disempowering us Pacifica. You know, she studies settler colonialism, so it's really nice to have that insight from somebody who will be a powerhouse for decolonization, I am sure. Actions of someone are more revealing than words will ever be. Ha'ani's next quote... I don't think things have to be so black and white, and I think that there's room to be a settler and an immigrant and indigenous. I feel like there needs to be more nuance in this conversation. Boom. Mic drop. Decolonize and support indigenous people. Sainama Asihaani for your insightful, freeing perspective as a Samoan Chamoru Gininguahan. How about we take a break? You can drink some water, and we will return with more. Aloha mai kako. This is Kavena Kapahua. As far as settlers go, it's a wide-ranging topic that has been long debated in the Pacific, but especially here in Hawaii. When white people and haole first came to Hawaii, it precipitated the population decline and devastation of our people, of Kanaka Maoli, with 90% of our people just disappearing. Not overnight, but... That's an apocalypse, and it's precipitated by the coming of these new people who ended up settling our lands. And so in being a settler, they enacted violence on us, whether they were shooting us and killing us, or they were just being on our land and thereby their germs were killing us, they were enacting harm. Um, And so that's one thing that cannot be necessarily separated from being a settler, is that harm. Especially nowadays, it would be different if Hawaii and Kanaka Maoli were uh, sovereign, if we had control over our land and resources if we controlled our government, but we don't given we are currently occupied by the United States. And so that is where this conversation around settlers gets far more complex. In a land where indigenous people have sovereignty and are in charge of the government and have power, are at the top of the food chain basically, settlers are going to have far less damaging effects in how much harm they can cause on the community and indigenous people than in a system where the settlers are the ones in control and the settlers are the ones who can enact whatever vision, whatever policy, whatever agenda they may have. And too often we've seen those policies are informed and run by white supremacy, imperialism, and capitalism. And so here in Hawaii, we understand this uh, very well, given that Hawaiians are not in control of our own government. That harm can't be separated from the experience of being a settler. Settlers, by definition, since we are disenfranchised on our own land, that being Kanaka Maoli, 
settlers being here displaces us from our own land, especially here in Hawaii, given that there's limited amounts of land and much of that land is continuing to go up in price through capitalism and finance and real estate, making it far more expensive for us to live on our own homeland, thereby forcing us out in order to appeal to settlers who have the funds in order to make our homeland their playground. When people are settlers, they have to recognize that there is harm in being a settler, at least in society or a situation like Hawaii, where the indigenous people are disenfranchised. There is harm in being a settler, uh, whether you come here two days ago or whether your family has been here since the kingdom. There is a kuleana to recognize at least the harm that is doing. That's not to say that you can't be a, a good settler, I guess, because there were those people in the kingdom the Hawaiian kingdom subjects who are not Kanaka Maoli, but were loyal to the kingdom and stood by it and defended it and did what they could for the betterment of the entire community. So there are many examples of this. For example, in the aftermath of the overthrow and other rebellions uh, that took place in Hawaii where Kanaka Maoli would rise up against the powers that be, many of those rebellions, uh, as they're called, were funded by Chinese merchants who procured the weapons to make that possible. That's a form of settler solidarity, um, and that's settlers contributing to the community and doing their part and standing by the indigenous people, not acting against them. I think that it is possible for settlers to, you know, not necessarily be entirely harmful so long as they are aware of it and actively contributing to the community in a way that helps negate that harm. Until Hawaiian independence is achieved, until America deoccupies us, until Hawaiians are in charge of our own land again, there will always be harm tied to being a settler. Settlers have to grapple with that. And if settlers are trying to move here, they definitely need to understand that. Them coming here actively displaces Hawaiians and does harm. And if their families have been here for a long time, then they need to be understanding the ways in which them getting to be here is privilege when so many of our own people do not. There are many ways that settlers can negate that, whether it's, like I mentioned, those Chinese merchants back during the kingdom who helped fund the uprisings. There are many allies who are not Kanakamali, who are involved in Hawaiian movements today. Some of them far more knowledgeable than I on said topics. One such person being Kyle Kajihiro. He is not Hawaiian, and yet he is probably one of the most prominent activists in Hawaii tied to demilitarization issues such as Pohakuloa or Makua Valley. Others such as the Grandinetti sisters, Lisa and Tina Grandinetti, other, you know, settlers whose families have been here for a while. These people are standout members of the community and they, you know, they contribute to everyone's betterment. It shows that, you know, some people recognize being a settler means that there's a harm associated with that and they are working to negate that and stand in solidarity with Kanakamali and contribute to the movement and contribute to the community in order to undo that harm and to push, not just undo the harm and get us back to ground zero, but move us forward toward the ultimate goal of liberation. Uh, and so I think if settlers um, listen to this and they're trying to understand what their positionality is in this, then they need to look around at how they engage with the community, uh, if they engage at all, and they need to really think about their place in all of this and how much harm they're doing. And if, you know, if they're just coming here, do they really need to be here? I'd say probably not. And so I think that is definitely something settlers need to grapple with. But if they are part of the community and are here, then they can help us move toward a better future for not just our people, not just for indigenous Pacific Islanders, but for them as well. And others who have put down roots in Hawaii and whose families have been here for a long time or just in the Pacific generally. I always like to point out that the Hawaiian kingdom was a multiracial country. You know, there was Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, uh, white people, Hawaiian. And so 
it's possible for us for there to like be that positive relationship between indigenous and settler so long as there's indigenous sovereignty if indigenous people are the ones in power and settlers are there either by invitation or by the goodwill of the indigenous people and that we have the power in making that decision of who we allow onto our land then it can be a pono relationship but if that power dynamic is off then there can only be harm and that harm must be worked on to be negated mahalo nui loa for listening hope to see you all next time okay powerfully strong ending with an admirable call to action there from Kavena. I don't know how he does it, honestly. I'm not sure if you'd notice, but it is really hard to be a Kanaka these days fighting for justice. Kavena is out here doing a PhD advocating for demilitarization, and he still shows up to protest randomly whenever he is able. Very admirable. This is his legacy. Kavena touched upon a point that is often not talked about much. The length of a settler's stay. This point is important because settler colonialism can be perpetrated by someone who has just arrived to your land just as easily as by someone who has spent their whole life there, building up their relevance. The paper we read on our last episode on family, the Davis case in the CNMI, the Davis case in Guahan, the Rice v. Caetano case in Hawaii, ugh, vomit. All those settlers were long-term ones who have been living in our lands, and biding their time, and fighting until the system finally gave them a break in the form of one opportunity. That is all it takes. One loophole. One vaguely defined word. And they can exploit it to allow them access. Disgusting. Kalakas. Settlers that stay for a few days are called tourists, and their legacy in Hawaii is astonishing. No surprise being that Hawaii is currently being overrun with tourists from the U.S., unable to close their borders and restrict access due to their situation as hostages to the U.S. I support Kanaka Maoli in their fight and struggle for sovereignty. What legacy will you settlers listening to this episode leave? Will you join Kavena and people like him in solidarity? Decolonize and support indigenous peoples. That is and will always be the answer. All right. Well, that was a beautiful round of narratives. It really shows you how our oceanic identity makes room for all these different takes that are essentially the same essence. There was Rhonda's fiery take on settler colonialism and what it does to tradition and the new generation, her calls to re-indigenize, Teatuahere's poetic, beautiful piece in solidarity, Timiti's experience being descended from both settlers and indigenous peoples, the awesome passage that she read in French, Ha'ani's calls for more nuance. Kavena's thoughts on how settlers can stand in solidarity with indigenous people. I do want to point out a deeper strand of thought that settler colonialism, while it may be easy to say that it is targeted at particular races or ethnic groups, it is not necessarily. Hang on with me because we're about to get deeper. Settler colonialism does not create a race of people and target them like slavery did. A settler doesn't go around and point to an indigenous person and tell them, because you are X, you don't deserve X. Instead, settlers look to an indigenous person and say, why do you have X? Why can't I have that? Why do you have access? How come I don't? Settler colonialism ignores the indigenous people's special ties to that place. 
evens the playing field instead. I saw a really powerful quote from an iconic paper on settler colonialism by Patrick Wolfe. I read this from their paper entitled Settler Colonialism and the Elimination of the Native from 2007. It reads, Thus, we cannot simply state that settler colonialism or genocide have been targeted at particular races, since a race cannot be taken as given. It is made in the targeting. Black people were racialized as slaves. Slavery constituted their blackness. Correspondingly, indigenous North Americans were not killed, driven away, romanticized, assimilated, fenced in, bred white, and otherwise eliminated as the original owners of the land, but as Indians. Roger Smith has missed the point in seeking to distinguish between victims murdered for where they are and victims murdered for who they are. So far as indigenous people are concerned, where they are is who they are, and not only by their own reckoning. As Deborah Bird Rose has pointed out, to get in the way of settler colonization, all the native has to do is stay home. Whatever settlers may say, and they generally have a lot to say, the primary motive for elimination is not race or religion, ethnicity, grade of civilization, etc., but access to territory. Territoriality is settler colonialism's specific irreducible element. That is what this episode is about. To decolonize our views on settlers, we must look deep to what settler colonialism looks to accomplish and how settlers can accomplish that. They want our land, and we are our land, but they don't want us. So, how can you want a land and not the people? Get rid of the people. This is why this debate is so hard to get into, and it is so, so hard and traumatic to get to the gist of, for many. It is insidious to imagine that a settler colonizer's paradise is one that is devoid of indigenous people on that land. The best way to fight settler colonialism is to stay on your land and be visible. But we in the islands know that struggle of remaining on our land can be so difficult. I'm sorry to have painted such a bleak and clear picture for you. Allow me to paint another. Imagine a future where settlers act in solidarity with the indigenous people of a place. Imagine a future where indigenous lands lie in indigenous hands, where you look around and you see the natural world returned to the stewardship of the people. Less development focused. Community gardens with native plants spilling their vines over the sides of buildings and local shops. Farmers markets and taro patches. You walk home from school and a neighbor offers you two lagwana or soursop straight from their tree to bring home to your family. Homeless people being cared for by community programs. A government that responds decisively to every typhoon, monsoon, earthquake that hits. A government that seeks to accomplish goals for climate change, sustainability initiatives, homelessness, and food insecurity. No child is left to scrounge for coins in the pockets of her dad's work pants to pay for her school lunch. Where mentally ill and disabled people are just people. Where a person's race does not matter as much as their actions. And these actions are not judged on a scale of effectiveness or worth in terms of output. A world that is green where plants and animals and people have a place, and nature is left alone in some places to be revered. People are not more important than the land. 
You look up to the mountains and to the cliff lines by the sea, and you feel safe knowing that your keiki and famaguun will be able to see the exact same sight, and it won't be bought by some tourist company and raped for all of its worth. There is room for mistakes, for relearning, for innovating, and everyone is welcome to indigenize themselves respectfully. Honestly, I can go on and on, but is this world one to strive for? Of course, for me. Now, let me ask you, my dear Deep Pacifica. Now, knowing what you know about settlers and settler colonialism, what are your thoughts on it? How do you perpetuate a healthy relationship to the land and the people of that land? How do you plan to now if you haven't? Has this episode brought you some clarity? I know that many have very complicated thoughts on this, and if it takes a while, that's okay. But here and now, there are places in the Pacific directly affected by settler colonialism and whose indigenous peoples are disenfranchised. Off the top of my head, uh, Aotearoa, Guahan, Hawaii, Tahiti, or French Polynesia. Australia, I guess, if you count it as part of the Pacific, which... I kind of do, kind of don't. By focusing our thoughts and being specific that we're talking about settler colonialism and not necessarily settlers, we can avoid some of the problems that people run into when they associate settlers with settler colonialism. Because until we come up with a better system for these people, there will always be issues in the conversation that excludes groups of people who need to be included or includes people who need to be excluded. For example, where do indigenous people with mixed ancestry fall into? What about indigenous people who act like colonizers on their own? Rigid definitions of these words need to be loosened. What boxes they check are not as important as the causes they support. We are finding out that the things we used to think were black and white, what we were made to believe was right or wrong, are actually more of a spectrum. Our indigeneity, more like shades in the ocean. And right and wrong depends on the lens you use to see the world. Decolonizing my thoughts on this, indigenous people aren't right for settling the land first. They just did. That is a fact. Were settlers wrong or morally unjust for coming to these lands to settle or being born in these lands? Well, Settlers don't necessarily consider the feelings of the indigenous people of the land they're about to occupy, do they? And why not? Why is this not something we would consider? This indigenous versus settler versus immigrant thing, it's not a game of one versus the other. It's simply a description of a person's upbringing or their mode of living and how they identify. This conversation, evolving in this direction, though, allows for much more nuance. It allows for inclusion and for people of mixed ancestry like Tamiti to have a place if she were in Tahiti, Samoa, or France. It allows for this identity to change as you navigate spaces in your life. Think back to episode one on identity, specifically to Tamiti's piece. Think about Carol Ann's piece on episode 6 on values. You know, I have to emphasize that I am not a social scientist. I am not a political science major. I am not anyone special in my own right. 
but I am one of many young Pacific people rising from the depths of our seas and spreading our message of solidarity, Pacifica rising, and unity in the face of all of this. There are many, too, in the diaspora, biding their time there until they are able to return home and afford to live. Some of them will never get to that point. It is a privilege to be living on these lands. Shout out to all of our diaspora out there listening to this. You are seen and heard and will always have a place should you choose to return. Returning is a political act as much as it is a physical one. And shout out to you, my dear listener, for wanting to come into this space to listen and learn. May your ancestors guide you and protect you on this perilous path of learning and trauma. Remember to reach out when you need to. That brings us to the end of the narrative portion of the episode. How about you take a break, drink some water, unclench your jaw, and we will be right back with an awesome paper out of the Duke University Press Journal, Social Text, on radical care, coming up after the break. Half a day to all my Guam listeners. This little ad is for the good people of Guahan who are tuning in and love coffee. Have you tried Cafe Gucha yet? Cafe Gucha is a locally owned and operated organic coffee and tea spot in Tuman, Guam. So if you go, I highly recommend you try out the Spanish latte, uh, a beautiful butterfly effect tea, or a pour over light roast using single origin beans from Honduras. For food, I recommend to try the vegan eggplant panini and add cheese to make it melty. Come and support the cafe that does beach cleanups, composts their coffee, tea, and food scraps, and supports other local businesses. Our mascots, the rescue boonie dogs, Potato and Mayo, will be outside waiting for you. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. So our paper today that we're discussing is entitled Radical Care, Survival Strategies for Uncertain Times. This was published in May of this year in the journal called Social Text from the Duke University Press, the link to which I have included in the show notes. This paper was authored by two awesome ladies, one who you might recognize, Dr. Hi'ile Julia Kawehipua Akaha Opulani Hobart, whose previous paper we summarized in episode two on language, except there she was breaking down the works of two Pacifica dance creatives, so this one is actually pretty different. Dr. Hobart is a writer, researcher, and professor of anthropology at the University of Texas in Austin. Her research is concerned with indigenous studies, settler colonialism, urban infrastructure, and care. The other author is Dr. Tamara Nice. Dr. Nice is a professor of media studies at the University of San Francisco. This paper caught my eye and was a great read for these times. I don't know about you all, but I have been feeling pretty burnt out and needed to read this. This paper begins by quoting Audre Lorde from A Burst of Light. The quote goes, Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Powerful, huh? It sets the stage for exactly why this paper needed to be at the forefront of our thoughts doesn't it? Then 
the paper tied in the words of the one and only icon Angela Davis, who has noted that times are changing now. Protesters and advocates now are including attention to healing the body and spirit, which is different than before, and it allows for these movements to be more sustaining. If you think on it, this podcast is an act of radical healing because, and I continuously must emphasize, if you don't take care of yourself, you won't feel like yourself. You won't feel that fulfillment of participation and your place if you allow yourself to be burnt out. And I am a big hypocrite now because I've just moved, I'm a student, I've not been getting much sleep because of other obligations in my life in addition to doing the podcast, but at least I'm not a huge hypocrite anymore. I'm just a big one. I know myself better now. I know when things are too much that I can just simply disconnect and I try not to allow myself to feel bad for doing this. It is self-care. I need to center myself within, but I also need to take time and continuously remind myself to remember why I do this, to remember why I am here. And usually that just means I go to the beach and watch the waves or maybe read a few chapters of a book and think. Or I binge on K-drama. That's, that's cool too. <laughs> I also want to remind you that disabled people need a bigger place in our movements as well because our society does enough to make them feel unworthy. And that is not right. If any of my listeners are disabled Pacifica people and want to feel a part of something, please let me know and we can see what we can do to make this space inclusive of your voice as well. Anyway, like I said, Miss Angela Davis pointed to a growing awareness that individuals in movements are aware that their lives, families, and personal experiences are directly tied to external forces. So, because of this, care is fundamental to social movements. A great example in the paper was how indigenous stewards of lands re-articulated their positions as protectors of the land rather than protesters. In doing this, the emphasis is on caring for the land and protecting her. What is radical care exactly? Uh, here's a quote from the paper. We define radical care as a set of vital but underappreciated strategies for enduring precarious worlds. Nice. Care seeks to remedy the emotional and physical toll this life takes on us. However, the paper does point out that care itself can be unequal. It's not all rainbows and flying fish, because care is inseparable from systemic inequality and power structures. It can be used to coerce people into unpaid labor, being surveilled, and can position some groups against others, determining who is worthy of care and who isn't. The paper talks about the framing of care and how two kinds of frames emerge. The rise and proliferation of self-care which puts the burden of care on individuals and is a symptom of the social deficits left by capitalism, and then how this self-care extends outwards into other forms of care that pushes back against structural disadvantages. Basically, this paper goes deep into examining the care strategies used by individuals and groups across historical periods and in different places. When Institutions and infrastructures break down, fail, or neglect them. The paper points to reciprocity and being attentive to the social dynamics and says that 
These two factors represent the kind of care that can radically remake worlds. Love that. I suppose it's true thinking about it, like reciprocity, you care for me, I care for you, and being attentive to the social dynamics. So if other people are oppressed, we would obviously give them a little more care versus the people who are privileged, who may get a little less care. It's just really interesting to think about. So who does this paper affect in the Pacific? Uh, well, this affects everyone who is a caregiver, um, a caretaker, anyone who is a protester, a protector, our academics and scholars, anyone who is a part of a social movement in the medical field, as well as students, especially college students. And how does this affect the Pacific? Well, um, because our people are here and they are hurting. They are struggling because they are at a disadvantage in many countries in the Pacific for care. Remember the article about the status of emergency care in the Pacific? This unintentionally ties directly into that. Also, this affects us because we are being directly affected by some of the worst problems in this world. The kinds that are here because of rich white people and the U.S. military, like global warming and rising oceans. My opinion. Um, I just felt like this was a good paper to read right now. It reinforced my definition of radical care, and it also made me think about the ways that I care about myself and then how this care for myself kind of extends outwards into other aspects of my life, my relationships with my family, with the land, with my friends, with the Pacific, with other people like my coworkers. And it really does make sense because you can kind of tell when people haven't been taken care of. And I don't know, it's pretty complicated, but it did make me think about it. And so that is really important, um, especially around these times where we really need to be taking care of ourselves and be aware of every little thing in our bodies. That radical care really makes you aware of it. It also made me aware of how self-care has just been marketed and marketed and marketed by capitalist companies. I really didn't like that. So what is being done? Right now, the world is burning. And everyone is struggling, so for the moment, the best thing we can do is to take these wise words inwards and know that we should care for ourselves and recognize when to slow down. Currently, there are badass Pacifica scholars starting these critical conversations on the importance of care. Engage with them. Self-care is not woo-woo. It is necessary. Future thoughts. Well, we would definitely have to decolonize our thoughts on self-care and on radical care as well. We have to recognize the capitalistic marketing behind self-care and the role it's been playing in how we care for ourselves. We also have to decolonize our views on self-care, especially men who have been taught, you know, to be protectors and all of these colonized views that are patriarchal have been really affecting our men. We have to know that radical self-care means that we care for ourselves first before turning that care outwards to help care for our communities and cultures. Even in the darkest of times and in the face of climate change and imperialism and everything bad, radical care enables us to continue to care, to use certain strategies 
to deal with these precarious worlds. So come to terms with what that self-care means to you. Learn what you enjoy, know what heals you, and then continue to practice it on days when your mana, your kana, is drained and in need of nourishment. Maybe one of those things could be listening to Deep Pacific or re-listening. To fight on, we must, because we have no choice. We have inherited this fight. We have inherited this world and this Pacific. We are the caretakers. So to do that, we must care for ourselves. This is now the end of the scientific paper. Woohoo! If you made it this far, Saina Maasi for listening all the way through. I really appreciate you. You can find these episodes on all the major podcast streaming platforms except YouTube. We're going to be working on that though after the season is over. I'd like to mention that we will be going on a little hiatus over the holidays to allow us to juggle life duties and, you know, replenish that life force that we need to continue to go on. We will be posting bonus episodes during this break time though that we will be announcing on our podcast social media at Deep Pacific Pod on Twitter and Instagram. So please follow us on there for that and join our Deep Pacifica community. On our next episode, we will be discussing religion in the Pacific. What it stands for to us Pacifica people. What it has been rooted in historically and where we think it will go in our decolonized futures. It'll be part four on our series on decolonization. So please do watch out for that. Tweet us, comment our Instagram or message us at Deep Pacific Pod to share your view, any thoughts you may have had or who your favorite contributor was and what resonated with you. This is now the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening.